Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Periods always were like just an unpleasant thing for me. But then I guess it was when I got out of high school and also when I started like having sex like that shit was painful and I was like I don't know if this is normal or not so I went to a doctor first thing they said is just go on the pill you know unfortunately in the medical field and it's you know it's a whole thing it's not one person's fault or that one GP's fault but there's hardly any education on endo <laughs> And welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we have the FFS in Bridget Hustwaite. Bridget is a radio presenter and writer where you may have heard her on Triple J hosting the Good Nights program. Last year, Bridget was diagnosed with stage four endometriosis and since then has made it her mission to raise awareness and start conversations around chronic illness. Bridget is radio's ray of sunshine and we cannot wait for you to get to know the woman behind the country's leading music radio show. Here's Bridget. Bridget, welcome to Shameless. Hello. Thanks for having me, ladies. Thank you for coming. We are here. You've made us cups of tea. You've got banana bread. What else is on there? Is that carrot cake? Or no, have I just pulled that out of my arm? It is. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I basically pulled it out of my butt because it's a packet mix of date loaf. Just Ooh. a quickie done Date loaf. I haven't had date loaf in so long. It's really yum. It's like my go-to. Interesting. It's all very domestic of you. Well, I love, I feel like I'm a nana. (laughs) So I embrace it whenever I can. When people come over, I'm like, tea. Well, not (laughs) only, not only did you have the mugs lined up, you also had like water glasses lined up, (laughs) three perfectly out on the table. But also how nana-ish are these cups too? Like they've got little birds. Parrot raccoon? You have like this sugar. I don't know why I'm guessing anything. I'm trying to spot things on the table and guessing what it is. It's like an Australian nature. And it's like a um, a sugar glider. What are they called? The you are asking the wrong people, Bridget. Like, no. Don't. Like <laughs> I can't even describe it. It's like a cute possum, but you, not a possum. You definitely have a sparrow, and is that a sparrow? Surely that's a sparrow. Yeah. And I have a parrot, like a rainbow parrot. Mine's a blue wren. It's on the bottom of our cups. Oh, there we are. <laughs> what do you have, Zara? 
cashmere or is this the brand? <laughs> <laughs> this, is most, this is the world's worst podcast opening. Let's actually get into the interview there, Bridget. We start every episode in the same way and that is to ask you, what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Okay. Well, first of all, I do want to say that I loved your story on Nadia Bartel the other oh, way. Oh, thank, thank you. I thought that was so good. I was listening to it on my train commute into work and yeah, I don't know. I think just the way that was set up and obviously that is a hectic story and hectic hectic time for Nadia but it was just so cool hearing you guys talk about her and not as like a wag and because you know that's obviously the 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 stuff conversation yeah 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 yeah. but Mm. I thought that was really cool so kudos to you guys thank you that is very lovely (laughs) I've just recently started a new podcast and it's from my boss Ollie Wards so he has taken the last year off working at Triple J to do this podcast it's ABC True Crime Unravel Snowball and it is so messed up it's about his family and his brother married, so they're um, from New Zealand. So his brother was a Kiwi backpacker in London, met this American woman. They fell in love, fell in love, got married, then went, moved back to New Zealand. And his family, his parents, who are obviously so generous, went guarantor for like a million dollars for oh her no. to buy a cafe. Like my parents, I don't even think would be guarantor for me just yet. But no. like, wow. Yeah, and she totally conned them and they lost everything, like their life savings. And it was his wife. Yeah, it was Ollie's, The brother's wife. The brother's wife. And then she fled back to America. What? And the last thing that she said to Greg was like, Greg, the snowball is about to hit you. And it did. And it's so messed up like that. This happened to my boss's brother. And I'm just so consumed by it. And he goes and chases her down, like tracks her down in America. And I don't want to give it all away. So he took a year off work to be able to produce this podcast. Yeah. Well, we tend not to be very sympathetic about these type of crimes, right? Which is not the way it should be. It's really unfair. But I think when we hear about taking a million dollars, we're like, oh, well, if you've got a million dollars anyway, we don't take it as seriously as we should. But what an interesting story. It is so crazy. So I only just started it. But I think it's just weird when you like, you know, the person who's been affected by it. So I had no idea this was happening to my boss's family. You know, he's been running like our station, like a national radio station and had this kind of shit in the background is so wild. So I've been listening to that books. I've just been reading um, Beating Endo, which is about endometriosis. So trying to learn some things off that and music. I'm just listening to music all the time. I should make you guys a playlist or something. Oh my God, please. (laughs) I need all the music help I can get. Really? Like I am quite openly terrible at music. (laughs) We are basic bitches when it comes to music. Let me educate you. I'll make you like a a Spotify playlist of just like, do you want everything or do you want like some female, just a female playlist? Nah, give me it all. Yeah, give it all to us. We need as much help as we can possibly get. That can be my homework. Yeah. I mean, we've been (laughs) playing Taylor Swift's album on repeat. Oh, I love Lover. That oh, song, great. instant classic. I love great. Taylor Swift. I love pop music. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you are so allowed to make up <laughs> <laughs> Bridget, we also ask every interviewee, what were you like as a kid? What was your childhood like? Oh, boy. I was a pretty good girl. I grew up in Ballarat. Yeah, didn't really get in trouble or anything. Have a twin sister, so I guess we got up to a bit of mischief sometimes. And, you know, just little things. You know, if I went to the wrong toilets one time in primary school, I just said it was Lauren and not me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we grew up in Ballarat um, in high school. I was very much a goody two-shoes, like 
you know, class captain every year, school captain, nerd, big stress head in year 12. I was very much consumed by, I guess, that idea of wanting to do well and getting a good enter score and going to uni. It's a lot Um, of pressure, isn't it? I remember there were days in year 12 where I would stare up at my bedroom ceiling and think about all the questions I may have gotten wrong on the last test. It used to keep me up at night. I'm still actually kind of haunted by it. This is so crazy. I keep having these dreams that Right now in 2019, as a 28-year-old, that I still have to go back to high school and redo year 12. And it's like my whole year level. And it's so weird because in my dream, they're saying, you know, if you do well in your enter and like get a better score than what you did, you know, 10 years ago, you can keep the new score. But if you don't do as well, you keep the old one. And I'm like, I'm happy with my old one. Like I don't need it. And I literally keep having this dream every few months. It's Mm. so weird. But yeah, I did put a like a lot of pressure on myself in high school. (laughs) It's so stressful. That time of my life, I think, was just like pretty bleak and dark because I I was just a lot of weight, which was absurd in that time because I spent so much time stressing about it. And I look back and I'm not sure what I was stressing for. Like I'm not entirely sure what the point of all of the internal and external pressure that we put on young people is for. Yeah, I think it's different now. I think, you know, how high school works is a lot different to when we were probably there. And especially for me, like, you know, going to high school in a regional area, we weren't open to creative opportunities. Like I was, I didn't know you could do radio as a job. I was trying to be a dietitian and it's because I watched Super Size Me and the dietitian's <laughs> name was Bridget. And I was like, that'll do. That's me. Yeah, I guess that'll, that's a sign. But yeah, I think it's changed now. And, you know, I see young people, especially in, in media and stuff who are out there doing like community radio during VCE studies. And it's like, you guys are so aware now. And I feel like there's more support and more understanding maybe everyone's learned from our mistakes and trauma (laughs) (laughs) our mistakes and trauma is a beautiful way to put it (laughs) what did you want to do I mean you touched on dietetics just then but like what was it music was a constant in your life as a kid or did that come later it was pretty constant um I was really lucky you know growing up in Ballarat there's been a pretty solid like music community there and there was also just so many underage gigs so I could go to you know these underage gigs and see local bands and it was really fun and thrilling and I think that's definitely where my passion came from but yeah it wasn't ever you know presented at school that you could try and be a radio presenter or work in tv or music you know just as the industry itself it was very much like you go you know to high school you either do like accounting teaching or nursing like that was literally the only options that I felt were possible at the time but yeah music's always been you know throughout my life I would go home after school and watch like Channel V and watch What You Want and see Yumi and Andrew G and um, James Matheson and Jabba and everything and that's what yeah inspired me to get into presenting because I um, entered the Channel V presenter search which was like seven years ago so that was my first crack and yeah it was because I watched Channel V growing up and I did a lot of debating and public speaking so I was like I guess I could talk. <laughs> um, so I read about this there were like 6,000 entries for this competition you had never presented on camera slash at all is that right? Yeah never. <laughs> and what was it that drove you to say I want to do that is it looking at the the television and thinking that's a very glamorous job. I think I can get up and have a conversation. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. I think just watching, you know, like I said, seeing Yumi and Maya Jupiter and all these presenters just on the TV interviewing like Grinspoon and like Good Charlotte and everyone and doing these broadcasts from festivals. I totally idolized that. And I was like, this is sick that these guys are on the TV doing it. It must be something you can actually strive for. And they would always bring in the Channel V presenter search was a pretty 
big deal back in the day and I remember watching previous competitions and other people winning it and I always was like I want to do this one day but I was really scared of what people would think of me and coming from a small town you're very much kind of aware of that judgment it's that idea of being too big for your boots right yeah that's it and it was a really funny thing because it was in 2012 and I was still pretty fresh out of a breakup But that kind of really pushed me to go for it because I was like, I don't have anyone to answer to. Like, I'm single, I'm young, like, I'm just going to have a crack and who cares what anyone thinks because I just want to have fun with it. And I'm really glad I went for it because, yeah, it kind of led me here. (laughs) We're really glad that you brought up that idea of embarrassment or feeling like there might be judgment because that's something that Zara and I talk about a lot, that it's all well and good to create something and look back in a year's time and be like, well, it's something now and it's got a following and it might have credibility or seem cool to people. But the early days of getting started in an industry like yours are really daunting and really scary. Did you feel like... I don't know, maybe there was a lot of judgment that was going to come your way in those earlier days when you were going for the V talent search, when you were maybe starting out in amateur radio. Was that something that you felt that it was an embarrassment tied to your job? Yeah, absolutely. I was really worried because, you know, at that time as, yeah, I was like 20, 21 and being in Ballarat, small town, small group of people, there's like just a few judgmental people there who were still living in Ballarat. It's like a small town syndrome kind of thing. But I was so worried about what they would think. I was always like that during high school. Like I never thought that I was a cool person. I always wanted to be a cool person, but you're always just worried as to what people thought of you. But then I was just like, screw it. Like, I don't care. And I just got a lot of support and it was really affirming and liberating and I'm yeah I'm just so glad that I did that and it gave me such a newfound confidence as well so and I still I still have friends from from Ballarat and people that I know there who even in their late 20s are afraid to do things because of what other people will think of them and I'm just like go for it because once you do it once you like take that leap you'll wish that you did it earlier. Well, it's always that idea that no one is thinking about you as much as you think they are. Like there might be an initial raised eyebrow, peaked interest, but it doesn't last very long. And I think one of the things that I really enjoyed when we were doing all of our research into you was how much that you did do when you were younger, like all of the stuff you did on Sin Radio, the radio shows that you would create. And I think I would love for your insight for young people right now who might not want to start that podcast or might not want to start that blog or might not want to start that radio show because it's really scary sticking your neck out what you would say to them yeah it is scary but you just got to do it like everyone starts from somewhere and you never know who you're going to meet like I think that's one of the most important things like not only are you going to meet like-minded people who share common interests and goals with you that become really close friends but you'll meet people that you'll be working with you know, in the industry one day. And that's how you get to where you are is like meeting these people. You just got to put yourself out there, believe in yourself. And what's like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, or you gave it a shot and you should be proud that you did it. So yeah, I think it's such a good thing. Even if it doesn't work out, it's such a huge thing for your personal growth and development that you tried it, you learned from it, and then you just think of what's next, but just do it. One interview I read from you, you said that you need to be kind in the industry. And I found that so refreshing because it's so simple and it's so true. Little acts of kindness really compound over time and I think have massive reactions down the track. It's not good just to be kind in the industry to be a kind person, but also because people remember that. They remember the feeling that you give them. And I probably, I'm not sure if you'll agree with this, in the industry, not everyone is that kind. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I probably shouldn't give a like specific example, but I think about that when I did the Channel V presenter search. And I'm really close with a, a number of the people who became finalists, but there's others that I w- I'm not close with and who they're, they're in the industry now and they didn't give me the time of day then. But now that I'm doing, you know, a national radio show and have like a little bit of a following that they try to talk to me and I, you just, I don't know, like I'll be civil, but I won't forget how you were to me at the start. And that's so important because you never know the person next to you where they're going to end up. And well, that's what they said to uh, us at our first day of uni. I think it's like, look around this room. You will be working for and with every single person here. So be a nice person. Yeah. And I thought that that was such an exaggeration, but you look around your own industry now and it's like, wow, everybody is everywhere. These are contacts that you're making from the start. Yep. Big time. And it's, it's not hard to be kind. Like it's harder <laughs> to be nasty. Like you're going out of your way not to be nice or to ignore someone or be arrogant. Like just stay humble from the beginning be kind and yeah, that'll set you up. That's really what it comes down to. Hey, it took six full years for you to get to kind of working full time in the radio and establishing your name in the industry. Was it ever an anxiety for you that it might not happen? Or did you always have that sense of self-belief? It was so hard. (laughs) It was so hard. It was really funny because right before I was offered good nights, I was like, on the verge of a breakdown because I was like I don't know how long I can keep doing this I was so broke I was living back home in Ballarat and commuting to Melbourne to do my graveyard shifts at Triple J what were those shifts so you're on air from 1am till 6am and no (laughs) yeah and it's not every night because there's like a whole roster of other people doing it but you could be doing two a week three a week and you have to balance that with you know, another income. And it's really hard. I was working as a travel agent before I got offered mid-dawns on Triple J. And I had to quit that job because there was no way I could work full-time. You know, that was like a 42-hour minimum job, you know, a week to do that and then squeeze in mid-dawns. So I quit and then worked at a cafe. But it was just really hard to make that balance because the mid-dawn shifts were so unpredictable because you didn't know what you were doing week to week. So I just was like, fuck it. I'm just going to move back home. And I was, I spent so much free time throughout 2016. I was spending so much time on the couch, like literally twiddling my thumbs, waiting for a call up and, you know, constantly nagging my bosses like, Hey, if you need to fill in, if there's anyone going on annual leave, like I'll do it. I'm willing to try any show. It's so awful being that person as well, but you have to do it. Like you literally have to be the squeakiest wheel sometimes to get the attention. Otherwise people might completely miss you. Yeah. And especially when my bosses are in Sydney as well. So you have to be you know, you have to really make an extra effort to be seen. And they used to call me their seagull. I was like Bridge the seagull who would just nap up any any shift. But it was great for them. They loved it because they knew that I was ready and willing. But they probably weren't aware that behind the scenes, you know, like I was working my cafe job and I would check my phone on my break and they're like, hey, can you fill in for Dom on Home and Host tonight, which is a show on at 9 p.m. And I was at the cafe at like 2 p.m. I'm like, yeah, sure thing. Go out to my boss. I've got to leave right now and drive to Melbourne and and prep a show. But luckily the cafe that I worked at in Ballarat, shout out Yellow Espresso. I was going to say, they just have a big shout out to that. Santina and Leo, they were very, (laughs) very flexible and supportive. And like, they listen to Triple J. So they're like, yeah, they made you. They helped make you. They didn't make you, you made you. But there's certainly an element of needing those people along the way. Yeah. And it's hard though, because I I mean, I was lucky to have, have that it's so hard to find a job that is understanding. And I know there are current mid-dawners who are facing that struggle of that balance. But yeah, going back to like my mental health and how I was feeling, uh, 
it's an everyday thing. And especially when you had so much free time, I was constantly thinking about it. What if this doesn't happen? I don't want to go to uni. Like I don't really have a backup. I don't know what I'm going to do. Especially as someone who was so studious in high school as well. And who I'm guessing probably got a really good ATAR score. You would have had the option of going down that quite academic traditional route. So to go for something that's non-traditional is scary, right? Because there is no guarantee and this industry is so volatile. Yeah. And also because I was back in Ballarat and I didn't have anyone there who could relate, who was going through the same thing. So it was a really isolating experience. And yeah, the music industry is just so rough, but the only way, you know, for you to kind of work your way up is by being broke for a bit and doing, you know, a lot of unpaid things. I did uh, like music writing for a while and then community radio, like none of that pays the bills. So yeah, it's kind of funny when I look back on my tax return from 2015, (laughs) that wasn't good. But now like things are good. Thank God. (laughs) Did you feel very much like you were stuck in this state of limbo where you genuinely didn't know what the next few years were going to bring you and you had to make some pretty tough decisions? Yeah, I definitely was feeling that at the end of 2017, I was doing a a two month lunch fill for Jen Fricker, who was doing Drive with Lewis because Veronica was pregnant. Um, And I didn't know what was in store for me after that fill in. I didn't know if I was going to go back to mid-dawns. I applied for Home and Host, which became available for 2018. So I was really gunning for that. But then I got completely blindsided by my bosses who offered me good nights and then told me, you know, we need you to move to Sydney and you need to let us know by the next morning. (laughs) The next morning. Oh, my God. So here you are. You're 28. Is that right? Now I'm 28. Yeah, 28. You're hosting one of the leading young radio shows in the entire country what is your relationship with work like now do you consider yourself a workaholic no (laughs) how did it change I think what really changed for me was when I was offered good nights I had to move to Sydney and that was a really difficult decision to move into state to drop everything my partner's down here my parents are in Ballarat I wasn't ever preparing for a move to Sydney and I think moving was looking back it was an amazing experience and I learned a lot and I grew a lot from it but 2018 was a very difficult year I think on the outside it looked amazing because I just landed the dream job and I'm living it up and you know being part of the hottest 100 and the splendor broadcast which is all amazing like I love my job but I think it's so important to have a life outside of work And I think that's something that in the music industry, a lot of people don't have, and it's so unhealthy. People are constantly on their emails, making themselves available to artists and just doing too much. Is that because there's a blurred line between hobbies and pleasure and work? I think so. I think that's a, a really good point. Like I, you know, music was a hobby for me, going to gigs and community radio was like a a hobby for me. But then when it turned into full-time work, you very quickly realize you have to set up boundaries and there's a fine line between work and pleasure and you it you know for your sanity for your health you have to have something else another purpose outside of that so you have a balance you know when you were in Sydney and you're away from your partner and your parents did you think that it or did you find it was much harder for you to find that balance because there wasn't as much going on for you socially you didn't know the city so you ended up working a lot yeah it was really hard because I, outside of work, I I mean, I dreaded my weekends in Sydney because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, you know, I I work with some amazing people, but not everyone's available every weekend to hang out. And then there's also other parts of the industry where people do want to hang out with you, but it's only because you host good nights, you know? So 
how do you make friends, like brand new friends when you're 27, 28? Like how, I, I, I mean, I didn't nail it, definitely failed at that. Um, so I ended up coming back to Melbourne a lot. I spent a shit ton on domestic flights last year. <laughs> but yeah, that, that experience, I think it was just such a huge wake up call for me because it made me realize what is important in my life. And that was, you know, my relationship with my partner, seeing my parents who only, you know, we only really have each other and yeah, just having a happiness outside of work. So I was very lucky that my bosses let me come back to Melbourne. So now I do the show from here and I'm living with my partner and I can go back to Ballarat whenever I want to see my parents. And yeah, just having that balance. I just think it's so healthy. Like it's such a toxic thing and such an easy thing to fall into. I'm sure you guys would agree. Like, especially when you're so accessible on social media as well, people think they can just hit you up at any time of the day about music. Well, we were going to bring it up with you. The word we use all the time is obviously burnout, which is such a buzzword with millennials at the moment. Do you look back on that time and think you were burnt out? Because Zara and I have definitely both experienced it. And it's hard when your work is so ingrained with online. You mm. are always on unless you're, if your phone's on, you're on. Yeah, absolutely. Burnout, like you should tattoo it on my forehead or something. Put, make it my middle name. It's such a, a big thing. I think I still experience it too. Like I still do a lot of work from home. And you try not to, but it, at the same time, you're like, I don't want to walk into work and be extra stressed. So I may as well just do it from home because it's so convenient. You can just jump on your laptop and get into your emails or go on social media and share some things that, you know, that work have been doing. But I think everyone just needs to do a better job as, you know, to just take a step back and, and chill. And we need to kind of figure it out. It's hard because the music industry is such a 24-hour thing and everyone does work at like different times of the day and different days of the week. So everyone's trying to do their best, but we just got to figure it out and like try and stop it because I think everyone's going to go insane. (laughs) How does that all intersect then with chronic illness for you? Because it was a year ago you were diagnosed with stage four endometriosis. Was it a year ago now? Yeah. How do you balance those two things? Because they're quite competing forces. It's really hard. And it's so funny you bring that up because yesterday I had a pretty stressful day at work. And the minute that I get stressed, I flare up and it is so annoying. I had just multiple people coming at me at the same time, asking for different things right then and there. And I was trying so hard, like inside my head, I was like, don't stress, don't stress. Cause you know, what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen. And then next minute, my ovaries are on fire. It's a really hard thing. And I need to do a better job uh, of like, just kind of chilling out. Cause I've always been a stress head. That's always been a part of like my DNA, but yeah, it's, it, they definitely tie in and I just got to really take a step back because at the end of the day, I have such a sick job. No one's dying. Like I'm just talking about music and you know, listeners probably aren't going to, you know, pick up if I make a slip up or something, or if I'm not doing as good as what I think, you know, I'll constantly grill myself if I'm like, that wasn't a good talk break or whatever, or that was not one of my best interviews. The listeners don't really know any different. Like the main thing you just have to do for them is sound like that you're having fun and that you're happy. That you want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the number one thing, but it's, it is really hard to, um, kind of have that balance of, you know, not being stressed because not only does it affect, I guess, like my mental state, but it physically affects me. And then when I'm flaring up, that makes work even harder. (laughs) Then you get more stressed. It's so cyclical, right? I know. Coming up after the break, why women's health issues are so commonly misunderstood by doctors. But first, a word from today's sponsor. 
how was that process of getting a diagnosis? How long did it take? Six years. It's a crazy amount of time, isn't it? It's gnarly. The average diagnosis time is seven to 12 years. And what was that process like for you? It was really hard. I always had really bad period pain and heavy periods through high school. You know when you're in high school and you get up from your seat and you're like, Jess, can you just check the back of my dress? But you have to say it so quietly. Um, Or you walk in front of your friend intentionally and kind of like, can you just just check? Do the weird eye thing. (laughs) Yeah, you you just look at each other and you know, right? But yeah, periods always were like just an unpleasant thing for me. But then I guess it was when I got out of high school and also when I started like having sex, like that shit was painful. And I was like, I don't know if this is normal or not. So I went to a doctor. First thing they said is just go on the pill, you know. Unfortunately, in the medical field, and it's, you know, it's a whole thing. It's not one person's fault or that one GP's fault, but there's hardly any education on endo until recently. There's been more awareness. So it's a common thing. You know, I'm not the only one. So many women have been misdiagnosed or dismissed. I went and saw a female GP and I thought she was going to be amazing. And she instantly shut me down. Wouldn't even look me in the eye. She was like not interested at all. And she was like, you don't, you don't have endometriosis. There are girls out there who have much worse period pain. And I asked, well, can I, I still would love to get a referral to a gynecologist. And I had to basically beg for her to give me that. And I didn't end up following through with the referral and going to see the gyno because I just felt so defeated and deflated by that experience. And then when I moved to Sydney last year, I was like, got a lot of time on my hands. Don't have any friends. Let's go see a women's health doctor. I can be friends with a gynecologist. (laughs) BFF. But yeah, had a fantastic women's health GP, referred me to an amazing gynecologist, Five months later, I had surgery and it was confirmed. It's so crazy that it takes that long and it is so hard to get a diagnosis. I mean, you just had those stats. I mean, we've had a few conversations on Mike now very recently about the concept of A, painful sex and B, the intersection between that and endometriosis and how there are no conversations around it. How did that mess with your mind when you were going through it all? Did it mess with your mind? Did you feel like you were going a bit crazy when people weren't taking you seriously? And did you feel... A bit like a burden. I mean, particularly to have a doctor tell you that it's not painful enough to be a legitimate illness yet. That must have been so befuddling to you and upsetting. Yeah, it's awful because you feel like it is all in your head or you're being a sook with a painful period. Uh, so painful sex rather. You know, you, I was embarrassed to bring that up because it was, you know, my first boyfriend, first time having sex. I didn't want to be like, oh, it hurts because like how do you even have that conversation or how do you know that it's not normal yeah exactly there's no I mean especially growing up you know in high school endo wasn't part of like the health curriculum when we're getting taught about our periods and I would only hope now that you know these high school students being taught to about hey this is what happens when you have your period this is what's normal this isn't and this is what to look out for and then wind that in with your sex ed like I think that they're doing there's been some workshops around high schools now about that which is so great but yeah it sucks that it didn't happen for us but you know it was worse for our parents and stuff because you know they never had the conversations there's just been years and years decades and decades centuries and centuries heck forever (laughs) since the beginning of time (laughs) uh, a normalization of these things and 
a stigma attached to it, you know? Do you think it also ties in with this shame around women talking about sex openly that we don't allow women to talk about pleasure, number one, with sex enough and that we don't see pleasurable sex as something that women should want Mm. and that they should want to be able to have sex pain-free? There is such that attitude out there. Did you feel that? Yeah, absolutely. And again, like it feels like I'm ragging on Ballarat. I love my hometown. (laughs) But I think when you come from a regional area – there's way more closed-minded com- you know, communities and conversations because you're not having that access to you know, the education and stuff and you're just a bit more neglected. So it's not anyone's fault. I would never talk about – I wouldn't even talk about sex with my friends. I was always very just reserved about it, I guess a little bit embarrassed. But um, I don't know, you, you kind of get to a point in time where you just like grow up. You know, well, my health's at stake now. Yeah. What role did isolation play in all of this for you? Like as you're seeking that diagnosis? Um, I mean, it was a pretty big factor. I, I only found out pretty recently that I have another friend who has endo, but we never talked about it because we weren't, um, I guess, told that it was a, a common thing or that the symptoms were normal or anything. So, yeah, you very much felt like you were the only one. And I think a lot of people still feel that as well. Like I'm a part of so many incredible like online communities on Facebook and Instagram for people who do have endometriosis. And it is such an isolating thing because everyone has a different experience and different pain and um, different dealings with, you know, medical professionals. Um, So a lot of people definitely still feel isolated in it. I mean, I don't as much anymore because I'm so lucky to have like a platform where I can talk about it and, I'm in such a good position, you know, to have that. Like I always thought, how could I not use my voice for something like this? So if I'm helping other people, that's great. But one thing I I, I would love to mention, which has kind of come to my attention over the, the last year when we talk about isolation and endometriosis It was a really big learning curve for me, um, becoming more and more aware of like non-binary and transgender males who have the condition. You know, it's hard enough for women, but can you imagine being non-binary or transgender with a a women's health condition and being told that's only for women, you know? And I've I've learned more and more, like more and more people are coming out and talking to me about it. I'm going to be doing a piece for, for work pretty soon, highlighting that issue, but it's just unbelievable you know we we always do like to talk about women's health and you know it is underrepresented and ignored and there's a you know not a great attitude for it and whatnot but I just always when I start talking about it, I can't help but think of, of those people who are in a much worse position than what I've ever been and even on top of that like cultural differences that yeah as white women we also feel shame around sex but culturally that would be huge for other women around Australia and other transgender people as well yeah yeah absolutely so you know whilst we have our struggles I think it's so important to have perspective as well and think that there are other people who have it so much worse than us and if we can find you know in our struggles just that extra ounce of strength and awareness to help these other women and non-binary and transgender sufferers it would just make a world of change so yeah like I'm so privileged in my position and it would be just stupid and selfish for me to not do something with my voice I suppose so yeah, hopefully helping other people uh, with not feeling so isolated. I have like my little endo um, Instagram. I know. Endogram. Endogram. My mum thought of the name, which is so good because I was really struggling for a while and I was like, oh, what am I going to call it? 
And it's just such a simple name. Like, it's great. Like it's we really, do love it. Yeah. <laughs> like it does what it says it's going to do. Yeah. It's straight up. Doesn't beat around the bush. But even for that, you know, like being able to connect to younger people and do it through a platform like Instagram that's so visual and, you know, arguably the most used social media, yeah. you know, tool at the moment. I think that's been a big thing with connecting to other people and making them feel like they're not as alone. And it's also making the conversation palatable, which sounds very clinical, but I think that's also really important when we're talking about something that people traditionally don't want to talk about. I wanted to ask you, and this is probably going to sound more personal than it is, um, (laughs) about fertility for a second, because as an endo sufferer myself, I think the first You have endo? Yeah. I didn't know that. No, but but this is the conversation that I think I've said from the start with you, Michelle, is about fertility. And I was diagnosed when I was about 20. Wow. That no one lets you have a conversation about projected fertility. And I find that very strange for young women in their 20s that might have fertility issues in the future that can't have a conversation about it. Do you think that there is a huge gap in public conversations about young women who might be worried about their fertility in the future but can't do anything about it right now? Yeah, absolutely. From my own, like my personal experience, I've brought that up with every, you know, GP and gynecologist and they're like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm 28 right now. When do you want to have kids? Mm, Within the next four years, maybe three, four years? Don't worry about it. I'm like, well, um, does everything look (laughs) I am worried already. Yeah, Yeah. I'm super worried. Like there's been times where I've had, um, I have a lot of cysts growing on my ovaries and when they burst, it's or rupture, it's so painful. And you're in ER trying to get, you know, medication to feel better and get that pain away. Um, And the two times that's happened this year, I've had ultrasounds and like one of my ovaries isn't mobile. And I'm like, that sounds concerning to me, but they're so chill about it. And you don't want to leave it too late because all this time throughout, you know, your your, um, young 20s to mid to late, you know, that it is too late to do something about it, but you weren't really told the right things. Well, it's weird, right? I think there's this huge sense that people don't want to scare young women with fertility and say you need to have, or fearmonger about it, you yeah. need to have babies by this age. But also I always felt exactly the same every time I ever brought it up. Like what would it be- what would my future best look like? Like is there an age I should be shooting for so I can plan? And everybody turns to you and says, it's not your problem to worry about yet. And I think their intentions are great. Yeah. It's like, hey, don't worry about this right now. But I think inherently young women are going to be. It's not just endo either. It's like polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of young women are stressing about it with nowhere to go. Yeah. There needs to be like this middle ground because it's either them saying, don't worry about it, you're sweet. Or on the other hand, they're saying, you need to get pregnant right now. Pump them out. Yeah. And that's happened to, that happened to my friend. She was told at 23 that you need to have babies right now. And is that the same on top with endo that it helps your symptoms? Because even I've heard that where it's like, when you get pregnant with endo, that's great. Helps your symptoms. Yeah. So straight up, there is no cure for endo, right? The best way to treat it is through like excision um, surgery. But a common thing that will happen to a lot of women is that they're told to either get pregnant or have a hysterectomy, you know, and that is two extremes. And those are two really big life-changing things. So to be told that in, you know, your early 20s or whatever stage of your life, even when you feel like you're not ready to do it, to, to do that, that's an overwhelming thing. But there's no middle ground between those two things, you know, like have a baby, have a hysterectomy or don't worry about it. Mm, well, I want to like worry. fundamentally opposite. Yeah. Like I want to worry about it and I want to plan. Like you said, plan is the key word, but I don't want to pop out a kid right now. Like we need that middle ground. How are you finding people are receiving 
your advocacy around it? I mean, I think very recently these kinds of things are gaining a bit more traction and awareness, but do you think that this is just taking it, you're, you are genuinely helping take it to the next level? Yeah, it's been such a positive response and, and you know, not only from um, people who think they may have endo or people who have endo, like I mentioned before, like uh, hearing about like non-binary and transgender sufferers, like that's been a huge thing. And also hearing from the partners of those who have endo. Like I've had so many guys message me about it who have had partners who have just been diagnosed or have heard me talking about it on, on Triple J Hack and it's prompted that conversation. I had one guy the other week who was messaging me on Instagram and he's like, hey, I'm just like at the hospital right now. My girlfriend's just had her laparoscopy. She's been diagnosed and we've both learned so much about it, like thanks to your account. And it's like, that shit gives me life. You know, that's exactly why I'm doing it. That's the gain that I get is to help other people. You know, if I had someone when I was younger who was talking about it in such a public space, my diagnosis would have been fast-tracked. It would not have taken six years. So the more people who are talking about it, I mean, Jennifer Hawkins just came out and said that she's got endo. Even Emma Wiggle, like for her to have it, and obviously has a really young audience, (laughs) quite young, (laughs) pretty young. But I mean, for them to, I mean, they'll know. And it's great. It. It's almost you want it to start that early. Yeah. And I love that you said that about, that about the partners as well, because if women are struggling in isolation, like you said, Zara, it's probably going to bleed into their relationships yep. and it will compound the pain that they're already feeling. It will seep into every aspect of their lives. So the more men and the more people in general know about this, the less shame, less stigma and the more conversations that are happening. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things like, you know, if you don't know like, how you expected that your partner is to know about it when you aren't as informed either. Mm. So, yeah, it's just putting putting it out there. And with the Instagram, it's just been so – I don't want to say it's been easy because it actually takes a lot of time finding, like, the right illustration. <laughs> it's a lot of work curating an Instagram it feed. Is. I know that sounds frivolous and ridiculous, but it's a lot of energy to make sure it fits exactly what you want it to well, fit. Especially if you want it to be as thoughtful and helpful as you do. Yeah, and, you know, I don't want to be posting – selfies and stuff like that's not how I personally want to go about it like I want it to be a neutral kind of conversation with a piece of really cool artwork that you know that catches your eye and then they read the caption and like oh shit just learn something and I've had like 16 year olds message me in high school who say you know we don't talk about periods because it's an embarrassing thing, but like I've shown your Instagram to my friends and now like we're starting to talk about it because the pictures are so cool. And like, that's exactly what it's about, you know, changing tack for a second. Yeah. We'll go <laughs> really going to change. Tack, <laughs> <aren't you? laughs> we'll go um, back to radio for a second. You were talking about the future of your life before. How do you see the future of the radio industry in general? Because it's a huge conversation point, right? You were just talking about podcasts before and how your bosses branch out into podcasts. What do you see for the future of the radio industry and is it an anxiety for you or do you think Triple J has enough of a hold on young Australians that it will live forever? I mean, I'm not I'm not feeling anxious about it at all. I think Triple J in particular is such a, a huge cultural thing almost for young Australians. And even if I didn't work there, you know, I grew like listened to the Triple J. I came as a, a fan of the station, not someone who just wanted to be on radio or whatever. It's such a huge thing for people who are outside of capital cities and like across the country who don't have access to all the things that we do, you know, here in Melbourne or whatever. And it's so big, you know, when we get to bring these broadcasts to um, our audience from Splendor and do the Hottest 100 and One Night Stand, like which is um, coming up in Lucendale in South Australia. 
I'm not at all worried about Triple J. I know there's been there's a lot of funding cuts around the ABC. We poor. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think if anything, that would be the last thing to be affected because it is such a huge huge thing for young Australians. What do you think it is about Triple J that is able to sort of have that real cultural touch point? Because it does and it has for so long. Centuries and centuries. Thousands yeah. and thousands of years. <laughs> Since the beginning of time. <laughs> I just think it's that ability to connect with everyone, you know, and it started out as an alternative to what like commercial stations are doing and whatnot. And in saying that, commercial radio has been amazing lately with its uh, representation for Australian artists, because for a long time it was just international pop acts. But Tones and I is currently like on her fifth consecutive week. I was on playing the her Arts. single for so many weeks on <laughs> really? repeat. Yeah, earlier this year. It's actually kind of sad. I think she owes me for like half of her Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> All her royalties is yeah. on your account. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I love that commercial radio is starting to take more note of Australian artists, and I think that's also reflected in the ARIA Awards. Like now, you see a lot of triple j acts who are getting nominated and winning and stuff but yeah i think i honestly think if there was no triple j or triple j unearthed especially the whole australian music industry would be in a lot of trouble because you know when people are starting out like you know flume is such a big deal right now but commercial radio would not touch his debut album because it wasn't radio friendly. Well, it's almost like something has to get a following or clout on Triple J for commercial radio to pick it up, right? Yeah. And, like, I don't want to say that's what happens, but it's... I, I mean, I'm, an, I'm objective. I can <laughs> say it. No, but it is like a groundswell of support from Triple J and then it lifts. And, and then yeah. commercial's like, great, we'll just grab those parts. And that's fine. Totally. That's totally fine. Like, I think for everyone at Triple J, we just want what's best for the artist. It's not like, oh, you're in commercial now. Like, <laughs> we can't play you. Like, you know, and we're playing more and more pop music, which is fucking awesome because I love pop. But for us, it's always about, you know, we're going to put an Australian artist before, you know, Drake or like we wouldn't play Dua Lipa or anything like that because, you know, Dua Lipa isn't sitting on the couch being like, I wonder if Triple J is going to play me. Like, you know, we're starting careers. Mm. And yeah, I think, wait, what was this? the question? I just <laughs> totally I, got... I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I think you've taken it in the right direction. Anyway, yeah. I'm not concerned about the future of radio, especially music radio. Mm. I know there's a lot of, you know, people play Spotify more and more. But people still come back to radio for that personal curation. And to find new things. I yeah. think you're probably in the perfect space for it because yeah. we know what we want. If anything, I think commercial radio is going to struggle. Like the um, Sydney Breakfast Show that's now just going to play three hours of music with no commentary. It's like, well, if that's music we already know about, we can just get that on Spotify. We want to find yeah. new music. You guys need to be telling me what to listen to. Like yeah. I need to be told. Like yeah. a curated feed of new stuff. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what Good Nights is. Like I have the best job <laughs> like <laughs> my show is the best on triple j because it is all about new music and it's people texting in with their recommendations being guest selectors where they record intros to songs and play them out and i don't imagine my, like i want to be doing good nights for as long as i can until they're like you're a bit old now bridge like time <laughs> to get on out but yeah i'm not worried at all speaking of that what does success look like to you how do you define success in your own life happiness yeah yeah I think happiness is so important with my experience and the grind that I've had to get where I am now it's not about money like I'm just stoked that I have a full-time job and that I am financially comfortable 
And it's a really tricky thing because this industry is um, kind of brutal and, you know, there are definitely people in it for different reasons and that's fine and one of those reasons might be money and, you know, you hear about like contract negotiations right across the board for any station. Like it's just business. People want to be on like amazing contracts and stuff. But I would like, you know, you could pay me peanuts and I would happily do the show. Don't like, say that too loudly. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> but it's true, right? You were doing this yeah. for peanuts yeah. for so yeah. long. And I think there's such beauty in that. I think that's what Zara and I come back to that we did shameless for free for a year and it's because we genuinely love doing it I think that's where it's where the energy and the vibe comes mm-hmm. from that you genuinely enjoy what you do and you do it for free well yep. it's like my favorite question in the world it's like you win tats lotto tomorrow what job do you do do you still quit do you quit your job or do you keep working oh and it's God. a really good insight into how much you love your work because you'd yeah. still be doing what you're doing now right yeah I would do that I would honestly donate that like most I mean I'd keep a little bit so I could buy a house because <laughs> You know, saving for a house is difficult, but that's what we're trying to do at the moment. I would, I just get rid of that to donate it to Endo or something, just so I don't have to see it because money creates problems, Mm. you know, and I think it's just important to stay grounded with it. And, you know, I'm happy with like what I'm earning and what I'm doing, and I'm not going to be asking for more because I feel like complete. (laughs) But it's true. Like, and yeah, success is, is happiness. And that, does you know whatever it is you're doing as long as you're happy that's the main thing what a lovely note to end Bridget (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for being so generous with all of your endo stories and for your activism and your advocacy in that space it's amazing to see and um, we've loved having you oh thanks for having me girls I'll get to work on the um, playlist for you oh thank you we'll have to share it in our Facebook group Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Bridget Hustwaite. You can find out more from Bridget on Instagram at Bridget Hustwaite or you can find her Endo Awareness Instagram account at Endogram. As always, you will find us at Shameless Podcast. We will see you guys on Monday. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.